my son was diagnosed with a pretty rare and aggressive form of cancer when he was three years old. He was diagnosed with stage four neuroblastoma. He basically had a 10 to 30% survival chance upon diagnosis. He fought for 18 months and his battle was incredible. He taught me so many things about life in general that I don't think I could ever learn in another lifetime. From Haymakers for Hope, this is not every fight ends at the bell. Haymakers for Hope exists to knock out cancer the only way we know how. Fighting for a cure through charity boxing. Thanks to generous supporters and more than 1,000 ass-kicking do-gooders, Haymakers has raised over $22 million for cancer research, care, awareness, and survivorship. But the march towards a cure continues long after the last bell of each event. I'm Julie Kelly. I'm Todd Buster Paris. We know firsthand because we are not just your hosts, we are also survivors. On this podcast, we will highlight the stories of fighters, survivors, organizations, and supporters. Not every fight ends at the bell. Round one. On this episode, we speak with Nicolette DeVoe. Nicolette fought in our 2014 Bells of the Brawl event at Royale Boston. Training on a quiet man's sports gym, she raised over $5,000. Nicolette, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. How did you hear about Haymakers for Hope? One of my friends had fought in one of the very first Haymakers events that was at the castle when my son was sick. She had reached out to me asking if she could honor him in her fight, and she invited us to be there that night. And then that's how I started in the Haymakers family. It was quite an event. It was amazing to see people who had never fought before just kind of get in and give it their all for an incredible cause. Who was it that fought? At the time, her name was Amy Zagarella. She's... Yes. Yeah, now has a different name because she's married. (laughs) Amy Zag, yes, yes. So you went, you supported her. Yeah, I got to meet Andrew and Julie and everybody. The event was amazing. My son was super shy, so he did not want to be in the ring to hold the card or anything like that. But it was quite awesome to see all these people come up and literally fight for a cause. Now, had you done any boxing before? Never. Never. My only athletic ability was soccer growing up. (laughs) Okay. So how do you go from you've never boxed before to all of a sudden you're signing up for Haymakers? After my son's battle with cancer, I was so impressed with Amy and her abilities to, you know, go out of her comfort zone. I figured it was the least that I could do. So I applied for two years in a row for both May and October bouts. And I finally got selected. And at that point, kind of was like, oh, crap, I'm doing this. (laughs) So you've tried for two events and finally you get that acceptance email. So what goes through your mind? I can't believe I'm going to actually do this. And then it's like, do I back out? Do I accept? But I knew that I had to do it. Like it was just something that I needed to challenge myself for. I looked at my son and I was like, if he can fight cancer, I can easily do this to give back to a community that did so much for us. And you fought out of quiet man, Jim. Yes, I did. It was one of the greatest experiences 
three other girls from that gym were also fighting in the haymakers. So we made a pretty incredible bond between ourselves and then even getting to know some of the other um, gyms that we would go to and do some work. What would you say was your favorite part of training? As weird as it sounds is like just being in the ring and getting punched. Like once you get hit that first time, it makes you realize that you're not afraid to get hit. Cause I think that's anybody's biggest fear is like that first punch. How am I going to handle it? Am I going to cry? <laughs> um, but I think that like sparring and building the bonds, cause no matter what happened in the ring, when we got out, we were friends, we hugged, you know? Do you remember your first spar that first time you got hit? Oh yeah. What was that like? <laughs> well, it was different because I sparred guys most of the time because the girls that trained at my gym were much smaller than me. So Dan, who was my trainer, always put me in with some of the guys. Todd um, was one of them. His name Todd Burris. He and his daughter went there and we definitely went some rounds. And then Robbie Lyons actually gave me my first bloody nose. And then I realized that I knew that it didn't matter. I can get hit in the face because if they can hit me, anybody can hit me and it would be okay. <laughs> Funny. So was Dan your head trainer? Yes. Dan Parks. Dan, Dan Parks. Yeah. He very much was a great man. He honestly was just so down to earth and he never let you give up. Like if you felt mm. like you couldn't, he showed you that you could. And for that, I'll always be grateful. So were there moments during your training where you did feel that way? You felt like you couldn't go on? I did. I had to lose a lot of weight. Not a lot of weight, but I had to lose probably about a good 10 pounds to fight in the weight class that I signed up for, 10, 12 mm. pounds. And for someone that is semi-athletic, it's hard, you know, especially when you're working out, you're you know, building muscle as well as losing fat, but the scale wasn't changing. And no matter what I did, I would leave from two hours of practice at boxing to go then run. And he just told me like, it'll happen. Like just, you will make weight. It'll happen. And after four months I made weight and I was actually two pounds less than what I needed to be. So I was excited about that. And just the daily, I mean, we were in the gym five days a week. It's, you know, gets a toll, takes a toll on you after a while of just like, you know, day in and day out and knowing that you're, you know, going to be going in front of a crowd of people and you don't want to let anyone down. You know, you want to actually show that mm -hmm. your hard work went to your fight. Let's talk a little bit about your hard work, about the actual fight itself. So I watched the fight and it's your, that first round, you fought a woman named Lindsay. Mm -hmm. Lindsay came out and set a pace. She came mm -hmm. out fast and she came out throwing punches. And you moved really well. You had that great jab and you took over that round. What do you think at that moment? I mean, your adrenaline's high and I luckily had a spar match against her. So I kind of knew that she was going to come out like that again because that's how she did it at our sparring event so like my game plan was just to go in and let her kind of tire out right away with giving all of her energy and just kind of be more defensive and blocking and then just kind of counter her to let her know that like I am here and just not take a hard punch to put me down in the first because I knew she was coming out fighting <laughs> you carried that theme into the second round 
And then in the third round, you got those standing eights. You gave her, where a standing eight, for those of you listening, is when the referee thinks that a boxer is either taking a little too much punishment or just doesn't like the look of what's going on, they'll step in and it's sort of like a timeout, but but they give an eight count, make sure that the boxer's safe and okay, and then they'll let the action continue. And point-wise, it doesn't mean anything point-wise, but it does mean something to the boxers. So what were you thinking during that, right when that standing eight took place? The first standing eight, I was kind of actually like shocked by it because no matter how much I put in, like she seemed to be, you know, in the moment, you don't realize how much you're actually inflicting onto another person. I know that I did cause her to get a bloody nose because that was cleaned up during the second round. But until that standing eight count, you really didn't know. And I was always the boxer, which... If Dan was here right now, he would tell you that I literally apologized every time I hit somebody. (laughs) And he was like, stop apologizing. And then at that point, when they gave her the standing eight count, I'm like, do I continue to like be an aggressor or do I like, because it is charity. Like, do I like back off and be nice a little bit? And I could hear the whole crowd like chanting my name. And like, I could hear my parents and I knew I just had to continue to be an aggressor. For things that we're going to be talking about, that right there is such a unique microcosm of, from at least from my conversations about you, really show who you are. You're nice and you're put in these situations where you can either continue to be nice or you can fight. And it seems that you keep choosing fight and you keep bringing your niceness with you. Mm-hmm. So that's, which we'll get to <laughs> more of that coming up. We're going to close out the fight talk. If you could tell someone who's about to embark on this four month boxing journey, you can tell them one thing, what would it be? Cherish every moment and make bonds and make memories because whether you continue to fight beyond this fight or this is the end, it'll be a fight that you remember forever. With that said, Todd, last bout was not with Haymakers. She continued to compete. If that doesn't make her <laughs> any more badass than she already is. But tell us a little more. Yeah, tell us a little <laughs> bit more about that. Yeah. Um, well, Haymakers definitely gave me that edge to go forward. I enjoyed boxing a lot. I enjoyed it a lot more than I thought I would. So that January, I did the Golden Gloves. I went up against someone way more experienced than me because I had only had five, six months of experience. (laughs) Um, I didn't realize how big Golden Gloves was, but I'm like, I'm going to do it. And then I also did the Lights Out for Leukemia, which was sponsored out of Boston Boxing. And then I did a couple of the Rocky Marciano tournaments. And my last fight, I actually won my weight division, which was even less weight than I had to be for Haymakers. (laughs) Um, And I got the belt and it was awesome. And I still have that belt. When we return for round two, Nicolette shares the gut-wrenching story of her son's bout with cancer, how he instilled in her to never quit, never to quit living, and never quit fighting for funding for pediatric cancer. Not Every Fight Ends at the Bell is presented by Haymakers for Hope. To donate, sponsor, attend an event, or better yet, to sign up to be one of our ass-kicking do-gooders, visit haymakersforhope.org. Round two. So what we're going to do next is we're going to 
switch gears and we're going to talk about your connection to the cause. We all know your your story and how powerful it is, but if you could just tell those listening other than your friend Amy, what led you to to Haymakers and your connection to the mission? So sometimes I get emotional, so I apologize in advance if I do. Um, but That's my okay. son, I might too. <laughs> my son was diagnosed with a pretty rare and aggressive form of cancer when he was three years old. He was diagnosed with stage four neuroblastoma. Anyone that knows neuroblastoma knows that. The younger you are, the better survival rate you have and the earlier the stage. So basically they say that children have a better outcome if diagnosed under one years old. He was three and he was also at stage four. So he basically had a 10 to 30% survival chance upon diagnosis. He fought for 18 months and his battle was incredible. He taught me so many things about life in general that I don't think I could ever learn in another lifetime. He was treated at Mass General for Children's in Boston. They um, were very great. Everyone was like, why don't you go to St. Jude's? Why don't you go to Children's? But Massachusetts, we're such a small community anyways, and there's not a huge amount of children's hospitals that they all um, talked with each other and they shared the same treatments. Um, One thing that you know, anyone that's been in there knows that with his diagnosis, there wasn't many treatment options. So there was basically two protocols that we could take. And they, you know, looked at both options and said, you know, basically, which one was better for us. So he went through six rounds of chemotherapy. He then had surgery to remove the main tumor and then did a little bit more of the chemotherapy, followed by 12 weeks of radiation. After the radiation, there was no evidence of disease, as they call it. And, you know, we just kind of went home, followed up. Two months after treatment, he relapsed with neuroblastoma. If you relapse, there's no cure. It's just management. So we started an oral chemo at home. And doing home chemo is like, I never opted for IV home chemo because I wasn't comfortable enough doing it just because I was afraid of reactions. Um, He was sensitive to getting platelets and plasma. So I was nervous that, you know, one of the chemos would cause a reaction. So I opted to go to the hospital every time he needed chemotherapy via IV. I did do a lot of his home feeds and antibiotics via IV at home, which was I was not a nurse at the time, (laughs) however, set me up to be a great one because I've never, you know, like if you can do anything on your child, you can do anything to anybody else. So when we started the oral chemo, we had to use precaution because I had a younger daughter at home. So I had to make sure that we kept, you know, all of the chemo stuff separate that she didn't get her hands on. The chemo treatment was also in combination with Accutane, which some people don't know much about, um, but it was an acne medication, but they also found use for it in other treatments, which I found pretty amazing. However, again, very high risk drug that had to be like discarded in a bucket and then like I had to bring it to the clinic. They would dispose of the waste. Nicolette, how old was your daughter at the time? My daughter was a year and a half, 
So, so basically she turned a, a year when he was diagnosed. Okay. Yeah. She's now 14, which is crazy to think. <laughs> um, but And she's beautiful. <laughs> We've seen her grow up over the years. Thank you. I can't believe she's as grown as she is now. It's I still can't believe it sometimes. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, so she was a year old when he was diagnosed and just kind of dealing with both of them. It was hard when I was at the hospital because I obviously couldn't have her with me all the time. We did do a few sleepovers and the hospital was really great where they allowed her to come stay at the hospital overnight with us. Um, But I had a really awesome support system that would help me take care of her when I was there because I couldn't be in two places. How did you take care of you during this time? Or were you just like, nope, not me. Autopilot. You just kind of do it. I mean, I would wake up. So... My kid's father was also very ill prior to my son being diagnosed. It was just kind of like six months of a shitstorm that rolled into another year of nonstop. But I would basically wake up. I would bring my daughter to daycare if I was home. And then we would, you know, I would stay home with my son, go to whatever clinic appointments or whatever he would have if I was impatient. My mom and my sister were really awesome with making sure that she was okay and good. Um, my friends would send videos and stuff like that because that was before the fancy FaceTiming of iPhones, <laughs> which made, would have made things a little bit better at least. But um, we spent a lot of time at the hospital. When he was first diagnosed, he was diagnosed on Christmas Eve. And then we went in that Monday for imaging and biopsies and all of that and basically spent the next three weeks in the hospital and that's kind of how the first you know 12 months went the last you know less than 12 months we were home a lot more so he partook when the oral chemo didn't work in um a radioactive therapy that they did at children's hospital in boston so we went there and they it was scary and it was that was probably the most trying time that and his stem cell transplant um, as a mom not being able to hold your child and make them feel okay and make them feel safe because that was the only time that I actually ever saw him scared. We were in a room, he was in a bed that was filled with like metal plates because it was radioactive um, and they when they infused this medicine into him this iodine which they use for some of his scans to highlight the neuroblastoma cells was actually had radioactive medication so it was almost like radiation but from the inside out um and they infused this in so for the first 24 hours i really couldn't be in the room so all these doctors and nurses at a hospital that he's never been to except for for this one treatment are in the room, I had to leave the room. They're all suited head to toe in this protective gear. And he was scared. And I watched through a little window. That's okay. I can't imagine how, you know, being a mom, how helpless you have, you must have felt. And I have heard, you've shared your story with me many times. I mean, I've known you for since 2011 and it's it's just such a gut punch anytime that you you share it with us and it's knowing you it's amazing to see what came out of this awful experience that you had in your life and what you've gone on to do 
not only through boxing and challenging yourself, but to put yourself through nursing school and to get into in, into fitness and to give back and to to be an advocate for pediatric cancer. And I think that's an important topic for people to talk about. And we need to do more for kids. Um, I'd like to he- hear from you on that topic because there there is a need for funding for kids' cancers. There is a huge need for funding. Over the last few years, I've seen it become a lot more spoken about and a lot more things being done for it. But pediatric cancer is one of the least funded cancer researches out there. We get about one percent, we might now be up to like five or six percent of all monies raised towards cancer research, which is terrible. So the treatments that my son went through were researches and treatments that had been discovered, you know, well over 10, 15 years ago that they were using on him because nothing new had been created and anything that had been created were all trial phases. So you had to meet a certain criteria to even be able to partake in any of that which is why after that last treatment um, didn't work, we were out of options. He didn't qualify for any case studies or any trials down at like St. Jude's or anything like that because he had too many cancer cells in his body. He had no more stem cells banked because we used them during his stem cell transplant and during the radioactive therapy at Children's. So you literally, your levels have to be subpar to be because they can't and you also have to go like two to three months off of a treatment before starting another treatment if it's just in the trial phases because they need to make sure that nothing that they used in any of the prior treatments have an effect on this Um, so when his last treatment at children's didn't work we went seven weeks that's when we were basically just told that like you know, we were out of options. We could continue to try oral chemos and stuff like that. But I decided that I just wanted him to be a kid. The seven weeks that we were not in the hospital were the best seven weeks. We were a family. Um, he, he went to Florida. He was healthy. He had his hair back. Um, and it was just you know, one of the better seven weeks. So when we found out that he relapsed and that there wasn't really anything else but like more oil chemo to make him sick, we just decided to let him live. And he did, you know, and he made sure that we all lived. He let us know every day that he was okay. He wouldn't let you leave the house without giving him a hug goodbye. <laughs> and it's heartbreaking because I know another family who their daughter has the same cancer as my son, and she relapsed, and she's older. My son was young, so I was very appreciative of that, that I didn't have to explain life or death to him. I didn't have to let him, like, he didn't have to be afraid of anything. He just had to be a kid. Um, Knowing, like, if he was older, 10, 12, 13, I don't know how he would have done. I don't know how I would have done, and it's heartbreaking. We definitely need more funding. We need more awareness. As I said, since his passing, I've seen Times Square go gold. I've seen a lot of people like the football players, and and I love that. It's so heartwarming to me, and it sucks that it's this late in the game and that it's post my son's life, but if it can save another kid's life, then you know I'm all for it, which is why I got into 
boxing. I ran the Boston Marathon for the Mass General Pediatric Hematology Oncology Clinic, did Boston Children's Hospital Marathon in New York, the lights out for leukemia. So it's just, I try to be an advocate everywhere I go. I reach out to new people that I know that have been diagnosed just to try to be you know, a support system for them because we need support. When my son was diagnosed, I knew one other person at that time who had been through what I had been through or what I was about to go through. And unfortunately, now I know a lot more, <laughs> um, but we're a close-knit community and we're a community that we don't want to ever invite new members into. <laughs> You're basically Wonder Woman, um, really. What you've just gone on to continue and to be an advocate and just such a kind, approachable person is it, it is just mind-boggling to me. And I just, I respe- respect you so so much thank you one thing I told myself and like I tell people is that like my son would never want me to stop living I didn't really have a choice because I have my daughter and it wouldn't be fair to her if I just kind of gave up and quit but my son never quit like he fought to the end like his favorite game was Mario and even at the end when he got too sick to play the Nintendo he would have you play for him and he would tell you what to do while he laid there and just (laughs) watched and like he was still fighting he was still playing even if it was through somebody else so that's kind of how I've looked at how I've continued is I'm still fighting for him when he was you know on his last hours I told him that he could just rest and I would keep fighting for him something that I'll never stop doing and Nicolette if there's a parent or parents out listening today and they're going through the same thing that you went through. What would be something that you'd want them to know? It's okay to be scared. And it's okay to not know what's going to happen, but never blame yourself. It's one thing that it took me a while to be able to not blame myself and how I didn't or wasn't able to keep my son safe. It took me years to realize that there was nothing I could have done. They say it's basically just the bad luck of the draw. Live every moment and cherish every moment. And just don't blame yourself. Reach out to those that have been through there and utilize whatever resources you have. In the final round, we talk about the impact Haymakers for Hope has had on Nicolette after the bell and how listeners can get involved in the fight against pediatric cancer. Not Every Fight Ends at the Bell is presented by Haymakers for Hope. Did you know there's more to Haymakers than just boxing? We also have opportunities for you to lace up your sneakers and run a marathon with Team Haymakers or grab your clubs and play in one of our golf tournaments. Visit haymakersforhope.org for more. Round three. What has Haymakers given you that you've been able to carry with you into the next round? Haymakers has given me friendships and a family that I never anticipated having. It's given me experience. It's given me strength. Because when you don't think that you can, it proves that you 
literally can keep going. I'm forever grateful for Haymakers pushing me out of my comfort zone because without them, I would have probably just, I would have never got into fitness. I would have never been able to be an advocate for others. I would have probably just been home working somewhere quiet and doing my thing, but it's really helped break me out of my shell and open me up to a whole new world. I not only do cancer fundraising and stuff like that and advocate to others going through it, but I started doing personal fitness training to help people because I remember what it was like to start and not know where. I was not in shape when I signed up for Haymakers. I mean, I went through my son being sick for two years. I didn't do anything but eat crap and hospital food and sit in a bed while my son sat in another bed and stuff like that. I mean, I had athletic background up until high school or through high school, but after that I was just a mom. Like and I'm now almost 42 and probably in the best shape of my life, even when I was an athlete in high school. And it's all due to haymakers and proving that like you can reach limits. You're never too old. I hear people like, oh, I'm too old for that. Oh, I'm, too. I'm like, you're younger than me. You're not too old. <laughs> like you're only as old as you let yourself feel and your limits are what you tell yourself that you can't achieve. Since your participation in Bell's 2014, you have gone on to become a nurse. Would you, do you mind telling us a little bit about that? What motivated you? So I had gotten into the medical field when I became a mom just because I knew I needed something more stable. When my son got sick, I kind of had to take a pause from that. I was going through school part-time throughout him being sick, but the last semester um, that I was at school when he was basically put on hospice, I withdrew not knowing how I was going to handle him passing, not knowing how quick he was going to go or how long, like when it would be. And I didn't resume school until 2016 because I just was a single mom and, you know, it was just financially time dedicated. My daughter was little. There was no way. Um, I then decided that it was a goal that I started and it was something that I was very passionate about. I like caring for others and I started off part time and I feel like I've been in school long enough to be a doctor now. However, (laughs) I'm not a doctor yet, but I graduated with my associates. (laughs) Um, I got that in 2017. I went right into my bachelor's 2018, graduated 2021 during COVID, which that was lovely time to finish nursing school while you're doing clinicals through a computer. Um, Yeah. So luckily I did have real life experience prior to that. And then after graduating, I actually went and got accepted into Chamberlain University where I'm getting my master's to be a nurse practitioner right now. So a year from April, I should hopefully be an NP um, working in a family practice somewhere because I do want to work more with children. Just wow. (laughs) I know. Just wow. I feel like I need to do something. I know. I, I feel like I got to go. I, I got to go back to school now. <laughs> There's many days where I'm just like, I could have just stopped at a nurse. I would have been fine. Like, <laughs> I like being a nurse. Why did I sign up? And now I'm that person that I'm in it. Like, I can't stop. Like, what would that prove? No, not you. <laughs> so in addition to what you had mentioned about for parents or a, a, a mom or a dad that are going through this or about to go through this, 
What organizations are out there that people can make donations to that are running events or doing things that people can get involved with? So there are several different events and they go from local events, from people just trying to do small fundraisers for their own families or children that are going through it all the way up to large, you know, events like for St. Jude's. I know Boston's having a big country concert at the new, I believe it's at the MGM Music Hall. And that's a big St. Jude's event where a portion of the proceeds go to that. I really recommend people just looking. So Cops for Kids for Cancer, they're great. Not only are they a bit big advocate, but they help the families. So one of my hardest things when I, you know, when my son was diagnosed was I was the only working parent because their dad had been sick and had been hospitalized for over three months when my son got sick. So we were one income down to pretty much no income because once my son was diagnosed, I couldn't work anymore. Like I worked through his, but I couldn't work through my son's. So having organizations like Cops for Kids for Cancer, where we reached out to them, they came up and they gave us a check to help pay our utilities, to help give us food. Those charities for small monetary donations, I think are incredible because without those, like, I don't know where we would have been. I couldn't go into a shelter with an immunocompromised child, even just the hospitals themselves, Massachusetts General Children's Hospital, you can make donations to them. Boston Children's Hospital, donations go a long way. I mean, there wasn't a day that we didn't get admitted that there wasn't like a welcome package for my son on the bed. Last question. Why should someone sign up to participate? Well, you could be like me and just be crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Or you can do it to change your life. Honestly, like haymakers changed my life. I mean, going through everything I went through with my son definitely changed my life. But haymakers made me not break. It gave me a goal. It gave me something to focus on after he was gone. Because, I mean, yeah, I have my daughter and stuff. But, like, it was a different focus. Like, he consumed 18 months of my day in and day out. Being part of haymakers and being able to give to a community that is deserving gave me something new to focus on. It kept me going day in and day out. It kept me breathing in reality. So I would say do it because the community and the memories that you make will last forever and you'll not regret it. Win or lose, we all win because we're doing a great thing. Nicolette, it was really nice talking with you today. Thank you for coming and doing our podcast. Thank you for fighting in Haymakers. Just thank you for bringing your light into the world. Just, you are fantastic and we really appreciate you being here today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure to be part of this community. And one thing I did want to say before I get off and just how much of a community and a family we make, you mentioned Lindsay, who was my Haymakers fight. Over the summer, I was bartending and she actually was in my bar and I saw her and I was like, I know that girl. And one of my coworkers was like, no way. And I was like, I can guarantee her name's Lindsay. And she went up and asked her and all of a sudden before I knew it, she like turned over. She saw me. She came running over to give me like a big hug and like to catch up because we hadn't seen each other in a while. We stayed in contact for a little while after, but it just shows that like your community, your family, and no matter what corner you're in, you're all in it for the same thing. Thank you for being here. Thank you for sharing. Thank you, Julie.
Thank you, Todd. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time to listen. We're grateful for your support. If you enjoyed this episode, please follow the podcast and tell a friend. To donate, sponsor, attend an event, or better yet, sign up to fight to KO cancer, visit haymakersforhope.org. Not Every Fight Ends at the Bell is presented and produced by Haymakers for Hope in partnership with Studio Pod Media. Our producers are former fighters Jordan McMillan and Julian Lewis. I'm Julie Kelly. And I'm Todd Buster Paris. You've been listening to Not Every Fight Ends at the Bell.